My mama told me something when I was growing up that has forever changed my life. She played the piano at our little church at 3rd and Pine Street for 37 years. She tried to teach me to play the piano, <laughs> but I wasn't very good. She would teach me the names of the notes, what a major key is, what a minor key is. She tried to teach me musical theory, but I was just bored. Then, one day, she told me that the best news in the world is found by playing a simple scale on the piano. No idea what she meant. So she told me to play an eight-note scale. So I did. I said, how is that good news? And she said I played it incorrectly and that I needed to play it the other way. So I did. Again, I said, how is that good news? And she said, I played it the right way, but I needed to add the pauses. The pauses? She said, the pauses. Add them on the first, second, fourth, sixth, seventh, and last note. Now, I was frustrated and said, how can eight notes with random pauses be the best news in the world? Then I got up, walked away, and went outside. Frankly, I didn't care what she was talking about. I didn't like playing the piano anyway. Well, years later, my mama got sick and passed away. As I was thinking about her, I remembered what she told me about the piano. Not only that, I still remember the notes she told me to pause. The first, second, fourth, sixth, seventh, and last note. So I sat down at her piano and played the scale with the pauses. And that's when I realized the good news she was talking about. Our scripture passage this morning is from Luke chapter 1, verses 11 to 19. Dave mentioned a little while ago that we're going to talk about uh, this no more fear concept. And you may be surprised that fear is actually a part of the Christmas story. It's not something we have to interject into it. it. It's right there in the middle of it. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him. Standing at the right side of the altar of incense, when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous 
to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you for all of the surprises that are wrapped up in the story of the coming of Jesus. Thank you for those things that are not surprises that we rehearse year after year and we are still in awe of, still in wonder over what you have done and how you've done it. We thank you for the kernel of truth at the middle of the story that you brought your very own son who shared all of your glory, all of your nature, all of your essence. It blows us away to think that the fullness of the Godhead could be wrapped up inside a little child in a mother's womb. How did you do that? Why did you do that? The only answers we can come up with are that your love is so great and so overwhelming that you wanted people to know who you are with skin on and that you love the human race so much that you honored it with the presence of your very own son. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for the wonder that fills us week by week through this Christmas time. Thank you for wrapping, up, wrapping us up in the middle of the story and for not only describing this child in the manger as your very own son, as God most high, but then telling us that we also can be adopted into your family and we can be sons and daughters of the living God who created the world. We are in awe that this story is for us. We are in awe that this reality of Jesus coming is so that you could rescue people like us. And we are also in awe that you include us in the midst of the story as we share our moments of grace with others, and that one by one there are people around our towns and cities, there are people around the world who are coming to know and understand and embrace Jesus, and because of Jesus are being adopted into your family. Use us in the process of the furthering of that enfolding work of adopting more and more sons and daughters into your family. Put people in our pathways that we can speak truth to. Give our family members who have perhaps been resistant a little more of a desire to know how this impacts them. Give us the grace to use words that are attractive and to talk about the changes you're making in our lives with humility. And now give us ears to understand more than we've known before. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever met somebody who was afraid of Christmas? Recently, I, I read a psychological journal that was publishing a list of fears that are associated with Christmas. I had no idea. I don't present this humorously. I'm actually giving a little bit of warning that you don't laugh because there, there are people who actually suffer from the different things that I'm going to read to you right now. One of those fears is called uh, tyrannophobia. It's the fear of reindeer. Seriously, some people are terrified by reindeer. 
somebody, okay, a little bit humorously, added one to that called Rudolphophobia. It's those who, those children who actually get afraid of the story of Rudolph and the Red-Nosed Reindeer, even though that's only fiction, right? Uh-oh, I just blew it, didn't I? Uh, there's uh, Chianophobia, which is a fear of white snow. Imagine a person hearing Bing Crosby sing White Christmas, and they have that fear. There's cellophobia, which is the fear of flashing lights. This may affect people who've had seizures or migraines, where suddenly flashing lights can trigger a variety of memories related to trauma. Uh, we didn't tell our lighting team before we lit up the, the roadway here about that. There's cisanophobia, which is a fear of being grabbed and kissed under mistletoe. Uh, there is synagophobia, which is a fear of strange relatives descending on you, causing some to retreat. I'll bet there are some people here who actually have that. There's doronophobia, the fear of receiving and opening gifts. There's gabaphobia, which is social anxiety from being under the spotlight as others watch you unwrap a gift with the expectation that you will love that gift and ooh and ah over it when you really don't care. There's phaophobia, which is the fear of Christmas elves. Yes, we know that Christmas elves are not real, but it could be an elf on the shelf or even a toy that just sets somebody off with this. There's santaphobia, which you can figure out. It's the fear of the guy in the red suit. And there are a bunch of little kids who have that. Try and put a little kid who's afraid of Santa on their lap to take that perfect picture, and it's disaster. This one's harder to say. Um, um, Christogenia which is the fear of the Christmas season and of Christmas itself. Usually this is the result of some terrible event from years back where everything went wrong at Christmas or maybe a house burned down at Christmas and forevermore people are terrified of that season. And then there's one more, ecclesiophobia, which is the fear of church. This could be a fear of church buildings, of church traditions, or that your family may demand that you attend church when you really don't want to be there, especially at Christmas. Now, I have to tell you, I've met a lot of people who have ecclesiophobia, you know, that fear of church. I remember one time uh, there was a friend who, who brought a friend in, and I happened to be standing out at the front door when they came in, and he said, this is my friend, and named him and said, he hasn't been to a church in 30 years. And, and so when they passed just under the doorway, I stepped back, and he said, what are you doing? He said, I just wanted to make sure if the roof fell in because you were finally here that I didn't get caught in that. Oh, he had a good laugh over that. Okay, perhaps you know someone who struggles with Christmas. So it may help you to know that there are some people in the original Christmas story who had to work through their fears that are around the reality of the first Christmas. In fact, realistic fears are actually part of the story itself. But take heart. Part of the Christmas story is that our loving God addresses and overcomes some, even many, of our fears. So this month, we're talking about hope for the holidays. And it may help you to know that some people in the original story fit all of these things. Each week, we've been focusing on the themes that flow from this hope for the holidays concept. So far, we talked about Christmas promises that are integral to the story. Last week, we talked about news that takes you home. Today, we're adding a third theme, no more fear. That's our theme today. 
So Merry Christmas and welcome my North River friends. We have a week to go as we continue to anticipate and to celebrate together. Welcome to North River Church. I'm glad to see so many of you here today as we celebrate this morning. And let me thank those of you who are watching online. We're glad that you are a part of this, and we're glad that you are taking time, whether you're watching right now live or you you watch this on YouTube tonight or some point during the week. Thank you for making this a part of your process. Um, If you're new to North River, I hope that you will um, take some time to go over to the Welcome Center, uh, grab a a connection card and fill that out. That's the only way we can know to get back in touch with you is you give us a little bit of information. Or if you're online, if you will uh, snap that QR code and that'll download a connection card to whatever you're watching on and you can get back to us as well. So here's the question I would like to raise. How does Christmas impact our fears? There are a variety of fears, and and I really, I know it does sound a little bit humorous. I didn't mean to make light of these fears if you are, are dealing with one of those wherever you are, but how does Christmas correspond to those fears? So I'd like to talk about some Christmas fear factors this morning because there are a number of fears that are related to the telling of the arrival of Jesus as he came into the world. Christmas fear factor number one is the fear of angelic messengers. So here we see Zechariah, who's a priest. He's ministering in one of the holiest places in the temple of Jerusalem, the one time in his life that he would get to do this. And uh, in Luke chapter 1, verse 11, it says, Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. There it is. Zechariah was terrified by the angel of the Lord who appeared to him. Now think of it. Uh, Luke tells us that Zechariah was a priest. He's busy lighting these incense candles and containers in the inner parts of the temple in Jerusalem. And Luke adds that Zechariah was startled. Not only was he startled, but he was gripped with fear. This isn't just a little bit afraid. This is fear taking over in that moment. I imagine that if any of us was in a quiet part of the temple expecting that we were alone and we would remain alone and all of a sudden you see a powerful angel of the Lord show up that we would be absolutely startled too. Perhaps we should call this angelophobia, the fear of angels suddenly appearing in brilliant light with messages from God. As we will see, Zechariah was not the only person ever startled by an angel of the Lord. Mary was afraid when the angel first appeared to her. The shepherds who saw the, uh, the uh, angel and a choir up in the sky singing glory to God were terrified by that sight. This is true in the Old Testament as well. In the Old Testament, we read about Joshua and, and the angel of the Lord appears to Joshua as the commander of the armies of the Lord. And Joshua falls on his face, terrified. And the angel says, get up. Don't worship me. I'm, I'm only an angel. When the Roman soldiers guarding Jesus' tomb saw angels in white, it says that they fell as dead men. Despite the popularity of angels in movies and television shows, my guess is that you and I really saw an angel in their full display of glory. You and I would be terrified too and we would fall to the ground. So Zechariah's response is actually pretty normal. At least he stayed on his feet. And as we will see, uh, this is something that uh, makes sense in the story. It's also not the only fear. 
There's also a fear of unheard prayers. The next verse says, but the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. That's actually where the title of this message comes from because that is repeated throughout the Christmas story. Do not be afraid. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you are to call him John. So here's a second fear that gripped Zechariah, the fear of unheard prayers. Perhaps you've been gripped by the same fear. The thought that you pray, but God doesn't hear your prayers And you wonder about that because he hasn't answered the way that you hoped that he would. For some people, that fear would drive them to church, hoping that God would hear you there more than somewhere else. For some other people, that experience might drive you away from church and away from God altogether. So perhaps it may help you to know that this couple served well and lived well in God's eyes, and yet their biggest prayer in life had never been answered. Their prayer had been that they wanted a child, and they'd prayed this for years and years. I know several couples who've had that same prayer for years, and God never answered it the way that they wanted. And now Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth were old. Zechariah tells us this in his astonishment. He says, how can this be? My wife is old. She's beyond childbearing years, and you're telling us we're going to have a son? Suddenly, when he hears that news, Zechariah knows that their prayers through all those years have actually been heard, and God was answering those prayers in his own way. Six months before Mary would bear Jesus, they would have a son, and they would name him John. He would be John the Baptizer or John the Baptist. He'd become the forerunner who was preparing the way for Jesus and and preparing the hearts of people for the coming of Jesus, preparing them to receive him with joy, knowing that God was doing something great in the world, something they'd been longing for for centuries. Notice the time delay that's attached to this prayer. I have no doubt that they started hoping and praying for a child when they started out as a couple. And now that they were old, it seems they must have stopped praying that prayer at least, and they probably stopped hoping they would ever have a child of their own. I know couples who've done this, and some have said, you know, God just redirected our thoughts, and we adopted, or we had foster children, and we had a wonderfully full life, and we're glad that God answered our prayers in a different way. God had other plans, and so they adjusted their dreams. But here we find that God had heard Elizabeth's prayers. God had heard Zechariah's prayers all along, and he was answering their prayers. However, the Lord was answering in a way that was according to his plan and what he longed to do in the world. It was different from what they imagined. What do you do when God doesn't seem to hear your prayers? I would say there are some lessons that we can learn from Zechariah here. Keep going about the work that he's given you to do. Serve well, serve faithfully, serve with joy even. Keep praying, but be open to how the Lord may redirect your prayers to accomplish what he wants to do in the world. And there are a variety of situations in life where we have prayers that God has to redirect. Keep praying, but be open to what surprising way he may actually use your prayers to accomplish something different. He does this to realign our prayers with his purposes. Let me say that again. 
God sometimes redirects our prayers in order to realign our desires and our prayers with his purposes. And he's God. He has the right to do that. And when he does, what the Lord unfolds is amazing. So we have fear of angelic messengers. We have the fear of unheard prayers. Here's another fear. The fear that the gospel is not true. Where does that come from? Well, look at the story in Matthew 21 where Joseph all of a sudden is brought into the story. Mary has told Joseph that she's going to have a child. The child isn't Joseph's child. He knows that. He knows that very clearly. And then she says, this is going to be the Son of God, that the Holy Spirit has come on here. And Joseph is saying, how on earth am I supposed to get my head around this? And he starts thinking of his options. And one of those options would be that he could call off the marriage. In old Israel's, ancient Israel's process, that would be called a divorce, even though they weren't married yet, because the betrothal period was a contractual deal between families. And we pick it up in Matthew 1.20. But after he had considered this, in other words, after he considered divorcing Mary and, and opening her up to scandal, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid. There are those words again. Do not be afraid, Joseph, to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Joseph was not the first to have questions about the virgin birth of Jesus. Or, or I said that wrongly. He was the first. If you're there, you're not the first. Joseph came before you. He was a morally upright guy, and suddenly his fiancée tells him she's pregnant. Not only is she pregnant, but this is going to be God's child through the Holy Spirit. The thing that Joseph was considering in his eyes was monstrous. Because if he divorced Mary, he would break up that betrothal process. He would open up her life to scandal, and he loved her. But think about it. Wouldn't several other people, several other men, have that same reaction? Yet the Lord's plan called for Joseph to play an important role too. And so the angel of the Lord appears in a dream confirming what the angel had told Mary. I find that comforting. I've had people, all kinds of people tell me, this is God's will for your life, Paul. And I think, you know, he never told me that. <laughs> and I, I think that I want to put myself in Joseph's spot that if God was going to do something very dramatic that would impact my life, he wouldn't just give somebody else far away from me this idea. He would tell me too. And that's exactly what Joseph was thinking. And yet, God didn't do it in the same way. An angel appeared to Mary in full form. With Joseph, it comes in a dream. A little bit different. But the dream is so strong, so real, so stark, so much in correspondence with everything that Mary had said that it confirmed this truth. And in the morning he got up and he was a different guy and he took action and he owned his role in the story. Now, what he was given on that day was testimonial evidence. Whatever you may believe about dreams, Joseph allowed that the Lord communicates this way sometimes through dreams. No doubt he knew that the Lord had a track record for doing this. If you think back in the scriptures, Jacob had a dream of angels ascending and descending to and from heaven. Another Joseph in Egypt had dreams and interpreted dreams, even for the king or the pharaoh of Egypt. 
Daniel had interpreted a dream for King Nebuchadnezzar that unfolded the Lord's plan for the next several generations of the Babylonian Empire and that landed Daniel as the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Think of that. Imagine a Jewish person being the third highest ruler in today's Iraq. That's what happened back then. This Joseph instantly knew that his dream lined up perfectly with the message that Mary had been given by the angel of the Lord. That testimonial evidence from the angel prompted Joseph into action. He chooses Jesus and raises him as his own son. He takes Mary as his wife. And then when the boy is born, he does what the angel instructed, and he gives him the name Jesus. Have you ever fully considered the evidence for Jesus? If God was going to bring his own son into the world, wouldn't you expect some kind of grand announcement? An announcement worthy of appearances by angels? This piece of evidence was the tipping point for Joseph. Most of the evidence that we have for the birth of Jesus is testimonial evidence. We can read the reports of other people who were around that scene, of the shepherds, of the magi, of Joseph and Mary. We can't go back and reproduce it. We either believe that kind of evidence or we don't. And testimonial evidence can be very strong. We're studying this in our small group these days. Mary put, in, put her reputation on the line and never deviated from her story. She lived a rather quiet life but dealt with the joy and pain of Jesus' public ministry along the way. Together with Joseph, they received the traveling magi from the east they took in the account of the celestial sign, a star with amazement, all confirming piece by piece as it corresponded with the word from the angel. Then they watched as shepherds and magi not only marveled but bowed down and worshiped Jesus. They stood amazed as a 12 or 13-year-old Jesus intellectually sparred with Jerusalem's experts about Old Testament law. Old Testament prophecy, prophecy in ways that amazed the teachers of Jerusalem. All of this before the healings, miracles, cross, and resurrection. To all of this, God's answer is simple. Fear not. Fear not because the Lord is at work. Fear not because the Lord has sent his son. Fear not because the Lord hears our prayers, even if he uh, redirects them toward the answers he longs to bring. Fear not, because he realigns our prayers and our lives with his purposes. And then there's a fourth fear that shows up. It's the fear of high expectations. Let me show you where this comes from. Uh, Luke chapter 1, verses uh, uh, 29 to 23. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. Think of Mary. Mary's troubled over what she's hearing. But the angel said to her, here, here's that line again, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Somewhere about 20 years ago, we did a series of messages around here over a couple of summers 
called What Jesus Would Say To. And I borrowed an idea from Lee Strobel. Lee Strobel was the investigative journalist who uh, had been an atheist, and his wife became a Christian, and he went to church with her with a notepad in case anybody from the Chicago Tribune had seen him. He wanted to tell them he was doing a story on the church. But what he was trying to do was to figure out how he could rescue his wife because he believed that all of this was a fairy tale and none of it was true. So he was coming to church and he was going to find all of the ways that he could disprove this theory so that then he could rescue his wife from what he surely believed was a cult. And along the way, he found that there were answers that satisfied his questions. And the more that he studied from science and from history and and from the Bible itself, He eventually realized that as his pile of doubts went down, the pile of facts supporting this went up. And he got to the point where he realized that even though he hadn't satisfied all of his doubts, that he needed to act on this pile of facts, and he had to take that step of faith from that point. And he wrote about it in his book, The Case for Christ, as he came back a few years later. It was a New York Times bestseller, and it led to a whole bunch of other books. But then Lee did this series of summer messages at Willow Creek Church that were called, What Would Jesus Say To? And so we copied that, uh, gave him credit for it, but we tried to talk about people who were relevant to our culture here in Massachusetts. And one summer, I did a tremendous amount of research, and we did a message that was called, What Would Jesus Say to Ted Kennedy? All right, for those of you who came along after his time, Ted Kennedy was the youngest brother of United States President John F. Kennedy, and Ted was a U.S. Senator for 47 years. I believe that's the longest that anybody ever held that role here in Massachusetts. And while he accomplished a great deal in the Senate, let's just say his life was marked by a number of scandals. (laughs) That's about as delicately as I can put it. I tried to figure out what would Jesus say to him, and there were a number of things, but the last one that I came up with, I thought Jesus would honestly say to Ted Kennedy, I know what it's like to have a father who has high expectations. Think of it. Uh, Joseph Kennedy had four sons, and he wanted each of them to become president of the United States. His oldest son, Joe Jr., was the one that all of their hopes were pinned on, but then he died in World War II. And so all of those hopes went to the next son, John. And John F. Kennedy actually did become the United States president, but was assassinated on November 22, 1963. Robert Kennedy, his brother, was serving as the U.S. Attorney General at the time and went on to become a senator in New York and then was running for president in 1968 when he too was assassinated. And that meant that all of those hopes then moved down the line to Ted Kennedy. And he did run, and he was, for several years in the late 70s and the early 1980s, he was either running for president or he was rumored to be running for president. And it was all this pressure that they had to live up to the family expectations. So rather than dealing harshly with Ted, with anything I might have disagreed with him on, I imagine Jesus telling him he knew what it was like to live with a father's high expectations. Jesus was sent and born to become Savior of the world. He was expected to triumph over sin and temptation, and he did. He was expected to deliver truth, hope, and eternal life to his people and to the world, and he did. 
He was expected to inaugurate the kingdom of God on earth, and he did this too. He was expected to suffer and die for the sins of the world with potentially all of the sins of the entire world on his shoulders. Imagine that. And he did. God had high expectations for Joseph and Mary too. Mary, though probably still a teenager, would deliver, raise, and train the very Son of God. Can you imagine being given that role? Joseph would have to nurture and protect God's son from enemies like King Herod, and to be honest, the evil one who wanted to destroy him because he's God's very own son. Let alone all the minor figures who betrayed him or gloated over him when he suffered and when he went up on that cross and when he died. How wonderful that each of these members leaned fully into the purpose of God for their family. And here's the reality for you and me too. God has high expectations for you and me as well. Every Christian, if you are truly alive in Christ, is an adopted son or daughter of God. We sang about that wonderful reality just this morning. He not only adopts us, but he gives us roles to play in the building of his kingdom on earth. And he wants you to embrace your new identity as his child and to live as a disciple of Jesus, not just as who you were at birth, but who you are at your new birth. And the more we do that, the more he will use us to draw others into his love and mission. He has very high expectations of you. I say that not to guilt trip you, but to enfold you more deeply in the story of what God is doing. Your faith and your life matters so much to God. Here's the central idea for this morning. Christmas replaces fear with hope, the hope of reconciliation with God through Jesus. Christmas also eases our fears and erases our fears. Let me show you five ways that it does that very quickly. First, it shows us that angels serve God's plan to reach people. Zechariah, Mary, the shepherds, and Joseph were all terrified or afraid of the angels, but the angels consistently called out, Do not be afraid. And they delivered God's good news of peace toward men. I would imagine if we saw an angel, you and I would have a terrifying experience, but we would probably hear the same words as well. Do not be afraid. We are not supposed to be afraid of them. And we know now that they are messengers of good news. Second, Christmas reminds us that God is with us. Jesus was given this title, Emmanuel, which means God with us. Perhaps in this season, we ought to pray to Jesus Emmanuel, Christ is another of his titles, the Messiah, the chosen one, but perhaps it's even more appropriate for us to address Jesus as Jesus Emmanuel, Jesus God with us. God dwelled with and associated with his people by sending Jesus as a human child. As Emmanuel, he is with us forever. He is part of us forever. He is forever for us. God's message to us comes through that name, Emmanuel, God is saying, I am with you, not just as a large group of people, but I am with you uniquely as an individual. I am your Emmanuel. I will be with you all your days. 
Third, Christmas reveals that God hears our prayers. Zechariah and Elizabeth thought that God had not heard their prayers, but he had heard them. He simply realigned those prayers along with his gracious plans. And he hears our prayers too. And he answers them in ways that correspond to his will. Will you let him do that? Will you release him from having to answer your prayers the way you really want him to? Because that would serve your goals. And will you allow your prayers to be, redec- to be realigned so that he will answer them according to even greater goals? Fourth, Christmas reconciles us to God as Jesus deals with our sin. Jesus came because our sin created a barrier between us and God. He came not to conquer Romans, but to conquer something even more powerful, the power of sin in our lives. And he did that once and for all. He who knew no sin became our sin in order to destroy its power. What a wonderful truth. You know, Christmas is the most popular holiday that we have. More people come to church on Christmas and during the Christmas season than they ever do during Easter. That's a wonderful part of it. Do you know why that's true? At Easter, you have to deal with the cross. At Easter, you have to deal with the message that God conquers sin. A lot of times that gets left out of Christmas. But actually, Christmas makes no sense. God taking the risk of sending his child into this world makes no sense if it was not for the fact that he was going to conquer the power of sin so that you and I could be triumphant over it in our lives and know that we could have victory over it, even though we will struggle with it till the day we die. That's at the heart of the Christmas message. And fifth, Christmas includes us in God's ministry of reconciliation. The shepherds were the first to see Jesus. By the next morning, they were letting the whole town of Bethlehem know that the Messiah had come, that they'd heard angels in the sky, and the best news was that they saw the boy in the manger, just as they'd been told by the angel. One person at a time, you and I continue spreading the news that changes lives. We are no different from those shepherds. We're just acting on their testimonial evidence and spreading that further. And the message is this, do not fear, God has come near in Jesus, and he's with us forevermore, and that changes everything for you and me. Christmas replaces fear with hope of reconciliation with God through Jesus. I wonder if you would pray a closing prayer with me. You can do this silently, or you can do this out loud with me, but... Here we go. Father God, thank you for sending Jesus, Emmanuel. Thank you for sending angels to announce his arrival and for offering us peace and reconciliation. Jesus, Emmanuel, come near to my heart today. Use each of us to reach others with mercy and grace. God, we thank you that you are a God who hears our prayers even though you may redirect them. And we look forward to how you will answer them. But we thank you for this one very profound answer that we know about and that we testify to as well. That you have brought Jesus Emmanuel into the world. God with us. And we're still in awe. And we're still grateful. And we are different and changed because of Jesus. Thank you in his name. Amen.